Parmigiano snow globe. Cucina mania. We all have it. It's a condition of cooking. Too much. We don't know when to stop. When some American people say lunch or a quick lunch or a quick bite to eat, we think feast, la festa. We got to cook everything. And when the meal's over, it looks like we slaughtered something. There's gravy splattered on all the walls. Gravy splattered over our hearts on our white T-shirts. Well, that's the American-Italian stigmata. Gravy stains over the heart. I took out the big pots. Company was coming the next day. First, I made 30 meatballs. Big, like peaches right off the tree. From the topmost branches. Chopped meat, soaked bread, chopped parsley, breadcrumb seasoned with oregano and basilico, fresh young crisp garlic, good olive oil, dozen or so beaten eggs, and mix it all with my hands. There's something about getting your hands in that spiced up aromatic meat. When I was a kid, my sister used to love to eat it raw, little bits, and my mother would forget it, holler, don't eat it raw. My mother was always against eating anything raw. It was like living with a public health expert. Ethiopians eat it raw, spiced meat. My mother was against all raw food. When she first heard of sushi, she says, sure, they got some racket. They don't even cook. That's because you can't imagine how many hours of my mother's life was spent over a hot stove. No one could imagine, and it's not just because she had kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. It was the family structure, what was expected of her, to feed all of us constantly for her whole lifetime. Meatballs. There's something about mixing them. I rolled the meatballs in the palms of my hands with just the right light touch to create the globes. It's like creating the world. And then you let them go. I threw them in a Pyrex pan in the oven with olive oil and onions. Set it to 350. Then I made spare ribs. Two dozen big, meaty pork spare ribs. I browned them in my new Le Crusset pot that I bought with my book royalty check. Cast iron covered in enamel. I always wanted a pot like that. Something made to last. I browned the ribs and threw them in the gravy. The gravy stewed for hours, slow, slow, slow. I turned it with the tallest wooden spoon. Then I started the chocolate pudding. I knew we'd make a cake the next day together, so I figured we'd slather it with chocolate pudding. This is another family tradition. I got out the other tall wooden spoon. I stirred the thickening pudding on the stove and thought about the scores of icebox cakes my mother made for birthdays and holidays. Chocolate pudding layered with honey gold graham crackers and topped with fresh beaten whipped cream in a lasagna-sized pan. Six layers. When this thing came to the table, forget it. Magnificent. A pageant food. I could taste it right now thinking about it. How many squares my mother would spatula to all our plates. We filled our mouths and bellies to the max. I turned over the meatballs, then let them cool and rest. Food's got to rest to get the juices right. Even coffee's got to rest. If you use an espresso pot, you got to let it rest before you pour it. 
I put everything in the fridge and went to sleep. The meatballs, the sparabs and gravy, the chocolate pudding. Company was coming the next day for lunch. In Italy, where we're from, in the south, the heel of the boot. Some dishes take days to make. The biscotti di mandole, the almond biscotti, three days at least. There's processes that have to sit for hours, you know, sometimes overnights. It takes time. By the time my zia Isabella walked her trays of biscotti on her head over to the community oven, three days had already passed. But afterwards, she fed the whole family, the block, the neighbors, and whoever strayed in like me. And of course, she packaged a batch for me to take back overseas to La America. That first trip I went to Italy, I came home like I went food shopping. Forget souvenirs. Grandma, what do you want from Italy, Grandma? Ah, the basket of cheese. Isabella, she knows the one. And of course, Zia Isabella grew her own almonds from her own trees. So recipes in this sense takes lifetimes. Limoncello, ah, it takes about a month to make. It's got to sit. Vino, you're talking decades attending vines, then years in barrels. Olive oil, gestation you're talking about. Some of these trees are hundreds of years old, fed with volcanic soil. All the good stuff takes time, lifetimes. But today we got another condition, empty kitchens. There's nothing on the stove in half the houses. Some days I'm in the car thinking of visiting this one or that one, and I realize there'll be nothing on the stove. I got to eat before I drop by. They don't even make a good cup of coffee. You got to go to a coffee shop before you go over the house to say hello. Not like it used to be. Coffee was a ritual for conversation that took hours. The table, la tavola, was a place, a piazza all its own, a rink for debate. Everything happened around the table, on top of the table, under the table. I mean everything. The kitchen table is the locus of our souls. That was the main arena in every Italian-American house. It struck me when I first got to Italy. I'd been around the sites, Rome, Venice, Florence, this, that. But not until I arrived at Aunt Isabella's table, my zia Isabella, in Acquaviva della Fonte, Provincia di Bari, not until I walked into her house and sat at her table, that was the moment I arrived in Italy. I knew I was home at her table, covered with her handmade, hand-grown feast. Growing up, I could visit my aunts any time of the day or night, and they'd put out a whole spread, nine-course meal like it was Thanksgiving or something, and I was just stopping by to say hello. I had two aunts who lived across the street from one another, ten kids between them, and my grandmother, their mother, lived on the next corner. So... Really, they controlled the whole corner. I'd stop in at what aunt's first, whichever one. She'd put out, like I said, a nine-course meal. She'd just keep pulling dishes out of the refrigerator. Then I'd say, well, I better go say hello to your sister. I'd cross the street to my other aunt's house, and she'd cover the table with a whole spread. These dishes, you wouldn't believe it. It's like, where does this food come from? Constant cooking, constant shopping. They'd cover the table with entrees, side dishes. I mean, these are big tables. These tables fit 15 people. Then I'd say, well, I better go say hi to Grandma. I'd cross the street to see my grandmother. We were never done eating. And some houses had two families up and down, so you had to go visit up and down. And you could never say, look, I just ate. I ate over there. She fed me. No, forget about it. 
That had nothing to do with it. Whether you were hungry or not had nothing to do with it. You had to keep eating. These elders, these old Italian ladies are inside me now, inside all of us. They possess us. This is a possession condition. It's le vecchiette dentro, the old ladies inside. The other day, a friend of mine says she's making soup for my mother who don't feel good. Now, my friend I know a long time, since we're 14 years old. She's a retired detective in the Bronx. She loves making zuppa, all kinds of zuppa. She stands five foot punto, five foot even. She knocks on the door. She's carrying a bag with two arms. Now, she's an athlete. She's carrying a bag with two arms like she's carrying an animal. She's an athletic girl. With two arms, she swings the bag into the apartment over the doorway. She's got five gallons of zuppa in a 10-gallon pot. This thing's heavy. Five gallons for my 90-year-old mother who'll take a teaspoon and say, I'm done, that's enough, just a little. It took me two hours to figure out what containers to put all this zuppa in to fit some in the refrigerator, some in the freezer. This zuppa was delicious. Believe me, it's the cure, the elixir. A scottol menestra from scratch with the tiny meatballs in it. It's a wedding soup. I knew what happened to my friend. She had cucina mania and le vecchiette dentro syndrome. She had both. She was possessed. In the kitchen it happens, I know. The same ancestors getting to me. That Sunday, I woke up late. Our company was already at the door. They were early, and I woke up late. My four- and five-year-old grandnieces and their mother, my goddaughter. I got my hugs hello. Then I put on a big pot of water for the spaghetti and put the gravy on in a giant pot with the two dozen ribs and 30 meatballs. Then it struck me. I looked at my two picharidu little grandnieces. I did all this cooking for a four-year-old and a five-year-old? What was wrong with me? For two little tiny girls? I cook like six men were coming home from the hunt. They're kids. We could have grabbed a pizza, made it easy. But no, it's too late for that. They already know at that age. They expect the meatballs and the spaghetti to be coming out of my mother's kitchen. She trained them. They already knew by the time they were two years old from her the difference between fettuccine, linguine, and spaghetti, and angel hair. These were the first words my mother taught them. They proudly twirled their forks with the long strands, and they've been saying parmigiano since they're two years old. After we ate, I asked my goddaughter to photograph the empty plates. White fiesta ware with gravy stains. It looked like we just slaughtered something. Gravy splattered everywhere. We pushed back the chairs and went onto the couch. My grandnieces jumped on me like I was a ship in the ocean. And I bounced them all around, pretending I was a ship. I popped a video into the DVD player from three years ago when the four-year-old was one and the five-year-old two, and we had the same exact dinner. Close-ups of my mother spooning meatballs onto all our plates, then walking out into the light, into the kitchen, and disappearing, and then coming back out with another pot. And the one-year-old holding a strand of linguine up in the air over her head like a trophy, triumphant, like she just won the race and crossed the finish line. And the two-year-old throwing her head back to a fistful of linguine 
down into her mouth. And the parmigiano shaker being passed around the table, everyone spanking that parmigiano over their plates. The white flakes of parmigiano reggiano snowing down onto all our plates. This is the world we live in. This is our world, this parmigiano snow globe. We're covered with parmigiano and pecorino inside and out. We have the gravy inside us. We ate. Then we watched the video of us eating three years before. It was like life imitating art, imitating life imitating art. Then we baked the chocolate cake and slathered it with the pudding. I love pudding, I remember saying. And I remember my goddaughter saying, I don't normally like pudding, but I do like this on the cake. And I gave them containers of meatballs and ribs and gravy and pudding-covered cake to take home and instructed them to make sure the dog gets a meatball. The gravy has to be inside us all. Thank you for coming to Annie's Story Cave. This has been a Street Cry Inc. production.